tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, Mystery Mummy, Mississippi Hangings, Baby Girl X, and Jeannie Boylan. I'm your co-host, Crystal. And I'm your other co-host, Robert. And this is Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. So, Crystal, before we started recording, I sent you a text message that included an image of a Del Taco order I had today. Yeah, and then I was like, twinsies. I also had Del Taco. You got a Del Taco as well. and Yeah, but I mean, is that really a surprise (laughs) that I went to Del Taco? on any given day i don't go that much i try to keep it to once a week you know i try to keep my uh processed and fast food consumption uh you know minimized right but uh but if i'm gonna if i'm gonna go if i'm gonna break it there's probably two things these days that i think are worth it and uh del taco and in and out burger are pretty much it so i would say those are also two two establishments where uh, when I pull up into the drive-thru, in my mind, I rationalize, like, well, this isn't like going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. This is fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Del Taco holds the single distinction of being the only fast food place that doesn't make me feel gross and sick after I eat it. And even yes. there, I have to be careful. But mm-hmm. uh, In-N-Out definitely makes me feel gross and sick. But I, I got in and out after returning from uh, from Africa. Sorry, I'm just gonna bring it up for the bazillionth time. And uh, I, I normally don't mess with it because it's so popular. And even though the line moves really fast, and I, it's just, it's a traffic jam trying to get into any in and out to this yeah. day in Southern California. It's just crazy. So I went. I parked my car. I went in, got my burgers, got a vanilla shake. Went home, got in that burger, and I was, I was angry at how good that burger was <laughs> because In and Out has been around for so long; it does not have a right to be operating at with consistency and at the level of quality that they're doing it. it I was angry. I was like, "How are they doing this?" Uh, I would have assumed that level of anger would come out of like. The owner of a rival fast food chain. Uh, interesting that you have that much pers- uh, investment emotionally into this. Um, yeah, yeah. I I, I, I feel very strongly about about chain restaurants and In and Out burgers. I, well, I will say yes. Like if I go to a In and Out, I feel like no matter mm-hmm. what, I'm always going to be presented with a a hamburger. That I mean. It just looks appealing to look at. It's appealing to look at. It's a sexy burger. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you go to any other fast food place, I mean, you might literally get one that just looks like like two buns smashed against a a patty. And it's, uh, you know. Yeah, the cheese is, like, half slid off the patty, and it's not really melted. And just hastily made burger. Not at In-N-Out. No. No. No, you they 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 hand that little box off to you, and when you t- yeah. when you take it in your hand and you, uh, I mean, it that hamburger just looks so beautiful. But this is not 
This is not a podcast about In and Out Burger. This is a podcast about Del Taco. So let's let's um, talk Del Taco. What did you order? What is this picture that you sent me? I saw some chili on some fries, which, by the way, everybody, Del Taco, yes, tacos, but also chili. I think this was the first time I had had Del Taco's chili, too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I uh, it was not objectionable in any way, and it made for, um, yeah, I, I ordered a sort of loaded fries. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure the exact, because there's like three different lo- pictures of loaded fries, and I just went with um, the one that looked like the standard generic loaded fry sort of order um and i enjoy that immensely you know just uh you know all that that chili and the, the other stuff they 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 dumped the top top those fries were uh those mm-hmm. crinkle cut cut fries were glorious and i also um mm-hmm. i also ordered a double cheeseburger mm-hmm. based on your recommendation that uh, to try the hamburgers at del taco um, and and i'm dying to know what you thought yeah well you know this was uh i, I don't know if uh, maybe this was just abnormal uh case or, or whatnot uh mm-hmm. when you when you get your hamburgers at del taco do they toast the buns for you i feel like they do yeah i uh, i took my first bite of the hamburger and I was like, "This bun is to- this is toasted." Mm-hmm. What the heck? And it, in terms of visual presentation, it was also appealing to look at. I mean, maybe not, you know, as sexy as In and Out, mm-hmm. but still, it, mm-hmm. it was not like a hamburger that was just three quarters of an inch tall <laughs> because the buns are pressed to uh, to near pancake uh, levels mm-hmm. of flatness. So I was I was very satisfied with my um, my Del Taco eating experience while I was waiting for the oil change to happen in my car. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, That's fantastic! I'm so excited to hear that. I mean, mm-hmm. I really feel like in the pantheon of fast food hamburgers that the 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 Del Double or whatever it's called is the platonic ideal of a fast food burger. It's a little messy. There's enough meat on it. There's che- there's flavor. It feels fresh. It's the yes. platonic ideal. Now, I feel like In-N-Out is a level above that where it's like, I need the best cheeseburger available on the market and I need it right now. And that's In-N-Out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not rating things on a basis of like pub burgers and fast casual. I'm just talking about in the realm of drive-through like what can i get you're not you're not leaving your car i'm not leaving my car although i do go into the in and out because i can't sit in that line forever i'll just go in like i can't possibly plus i like to watch them work it's exciting in there it is it's really interesting i i I sort of stand off to the side and just stare down the down and watching all the uh the the young people's working there and and that's another thing too doesn't it seem like the people at in and out don't they just seem like they're more genuinely happy with their lives than like a lot of people workers at other fast food restaurants (laughs) yeah well i mean that's because they're getting paid a lot more and treated better right right oh yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) but it's also i think it's one of those things of like yeah, there's a lot of variations on the in and out menu, but it's very simple. So you're not stressing people out with having 40 things on the menu. They make right. hamburgers and cheeseburgers and fries and shakes and that's it. 
And you can have some variance on how you want your burger. But you know what I mean? It's a very simple line. You know, they're making everything fresh. I mean, in and out has been the standard, I mean, as far, or I would say industry leader on like how fast food workers could be treated mm-hmm. and just aren't. But it's also a private company. There aren't any shareholders making decisions for in and out. Right, um, right. That's that's so, also probably a big component of it. But it's fun watching them put those potatoes in and and and, and yeah. pulling the lever down and it makes the fries. It's like wow. Yeah. Right? They're, not, they're not coming I in like, some vacuum sealed bag. No, they make they make the fries. I mean their fries suck, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. In and out's fries suck. I mean it's, it just it's... has to be said. In and out fries absolutely suck, but I don't I don't even care about those. I go in and I order burgers only. I'm not even trying to do like fries. But um, I like when you go up to the counter and they're like, I got three up with cheese. They like yell it over their shoulder. (laughs) You notice that? That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. We're having fun at In-N-Out, but this is not an In-N-Out podcast. This is an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. I guess I guess we should get around to talking about season six, episode 14 of Unsolved Mysteries. Robbie. Uh, the first segment, our first mystery, is a small mystery. <laughs> yes, a small, small mystery. Yeah, about um, seventeen inches tall, the height of a coffee table. Is that the standard height of a coffee table? In seventeen inches. <laughs> well, unsolved mysteries. Uh, someone, uh, someone, someone in the segment said <laughs> that that's the analogy they used, and I I made sure to note it down. Like, hmm, the height wow. of a coffee. Though, though it's funny because, I, and we haven't even started talking about the segment yet, so if you haven't seen it, people don't know what we're talking about. But what they're using to rep, uh, in the reenactments to 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 be this this mummy. By the way, this segment is about like some alleged little person mummy. Oh, I hate mummies. Like I know they they were saying that you know. It was small. It was only, like if 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 the mummy was standing, it would be seventeen inches tall. But honestly, like what they had made, what the prop department had made up for this segment mm-hmm. looks a lot smaller than that. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Yeah, it kind of fits in the palm of your hand a little bit. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I it should have been a bit larger. I agree. Yes, but this segment's about a. An alleged mummy of uh, that some people believe might be of a um, species of little people, I guess, akin to hobbits. Um, in uh, yeah, that... <laughs> um, they uh, they say some Native Americans, and they are uh, wildly unspecific. Right, with which tribes? And, uh, and and listen, guys. If anyone starts a story with some Native Americans tribes believe, just you can just tune out the rest of that shit. Unless you can get s- fucking specific. And I don't even think there's any excuse for this, even in the mid '90s. Come on now. Yeah, and I think it if was. You telling- can't tell me which tribes believe in little people, little creatures running around. Then you're just talking out your ass. It was telling that. 
there was no Native American people interviewed in the segment either. Yep. So I feel like... <laughs> yep, you could have asked, I don't know, somebody, since you're saying that... I mean, it's basically like when Trump says, well, people are saying... And it's like, nobody's saying that, dude. Like, <laughs> can you tell me one person who's saying that? And if you can't produce that person, then, like, what? why are you even introducing this as, like, Native American myth says there are magical little people running around it's just like what right can we talk um, to some, can we talk to one of these native americans about that yeah and it's funny because there's a re uh little um i'm not sure what they uh if, if they went to like because there's a during the early on there's a when they're when they're discussing these uh these alleged little people they have uh, a reenactment of some uh, native americans gathered around a campfire in a sort of a little encampment and mm-hmm. um, I'm, I, yeah. I'm, first of all, I'm curious. Was like, was this like sort of a group that likes to recreate? You know, um, I, 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 I hesitate to use the term reenactor as as uh, mm-hmm. like I would with say Renaissance or whatever. But uh, you know, people are just sort of like um, trying to create sort of a historically authentic looking uh, thing and. Who just do it on their own and unsolved mysteries approach them and it's like, hey, can we record you for like a couple minutes so we can use it as a supplemental thing for one of our segments? Um, so I mean, they could have asked someone there, <laughs> yeah. but then again, maybe that maybe the, maybe they were afraid that like they would find that the they them being allowed to record would have been rescinded. Like, wait. This is what you're you're recording this for? Please go away. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, the the further we get into this segment, though, it becomes very clear maybe why some Native American experts or Native Americans themselves may have not wanted to participate. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, well, I mean, this segment, I knew I knew we were in trouble as soon as like it opens mm. up with some some landscape views and. Uh, you know, Robert Stack starts out, you know, like the American West. One, some might say it's a magical land. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, no. And sure enough, within a few moments, that pan, pan music starts, starts, yeah. starts up. It's like, oh, no. And it's playing uh, uh, for the first couple minutes of the segment. Um, yeah. And well, we 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 discuss the, the this this little person sort of thing, um, and then we the read the segment goes on to talk about like in the early 1900s, uh, these two guys uh, Cecil Maine and Frank Carr, who I guess are prospectors. We get and a, definitely the same guys from the beginning of uh, Last Crusade. Oh, the no. Last Crusade. Oh, yes. <laughs> Right, they're 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 same vibe, right? They're they're dressed in the. I mean, they they give off the same exact same sort of vibes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, they uh, and likewise, they are they are going through the ground, uh, searching for something. Um, sort of interesting that, like, I'm assuming they were these guys were actually searching for like precious metals, or whatnot, and yeah. they come across this little. Um, well, it's a mummy. It looks like a little statue. Yeah. Um, uh, but this little mummy, and uh, it discusses, you know, like 
uh, you know, the, the, their, their reactions upon coming across it. And then they sort of, they mentioned like a couple of days later that Cecil came in and, you know, they, uh, they, they, they allude to like not caring about the, you know, the legends or the, the, the warnings or whatever. Cause I guess the suggestion right. is this mummy is cursed. Um, yeah. Uh, and, but what I was more distracted by was like, okay, this guy came back a couple of days later. Like, is he sort of going behind his partner's back here? Cause especially yes. like when they, when they have the footage of him walking, when he's out of the cave and he's, he's got the, the mummy in his hand. And he, he's, he's walking through the, the woods or, or whatever. Um, you know, he kind of has this look on his face, like this guilty two time and luck. And mm-hmm. uh, like, I, I, none, you know, they don't mention any of this in the segment. You just kind of infer it. Like I, I pretty much was like in my head, I filled it in. Like they found the mummy and mm-hmm. he was either like, ah, oh, this is just, you know, whatever this isn't the gold we were looking for what a bust and mm-hmm. uh, he sort of talks you know t- gets he gaslights his partner frank into being like yeah we don't want this and then they leave and then a couple of days later when he knows frank isn't watching him he comes back and grabs it <laughs> what a mm-hmm. piece of shit um oh for it, so many reasons too yeah yeah for many reasons yes uh but yeah, so uh, uh, Robert Stack in one of the interstitial Stack uh, bits, he talks about how allegedly everyone who's come in possession of this mummy uh, and you know a number of people have suffered like misfortune. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says it in but the then exact. Then there's like no specific examples. Yeah, I that that was that was what I found disappointing was like I mean he alludes to like the last person who had it you know had disappeared and it's not mm-hmm. but it's like they didn't disappear in that oh something happened you know unfortunate happened to them it's just like they just went off the grid or or, or basically so it's like it would have been yeah I mean this the segment would have probably have been a lot more interesting if like if these guys really suffered misfortune tell us tell us about this explain the chain uh you know that would have been i mean uh maybe they didn't because they were maybe exaggerating the the misfortune aspect like i mean i guess they could say like well all of them have died but it's like yeah i mean if you're around in the 1920s you're probably probably not still with us so uh <laughs> um yeah they they interview uh a number of people one that sort of gets interviewed early on and then the, there's a bit of a reveal about him is a guy named Eugene Eugene Bashar Bashar mm-hmm. uh um and he's labeled as a researcher right yeah and Man. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but so the reveal we eventually get about this guy, cause they mention how in 1934, um, a n- man named Harold Schumann, who was an insurance salesman, bought the, mm-hmm. the mummy mm-hmm. and, 
he made like a traveling roadside attraction out of it. This mm-hmm. was, yeah. Uh, so they have a little reenactment where he's standing uh, by uh, on the street and a little ways out into the field is a tent. Uh, you know, so I, and he's like, come right up. See the, the the mysterious little person mummy. That's right, mm-hmm. folks. For just the price of a nickel, you too can see. And and they have a period car drive by. It's like okay, but what I found kind of distracting was if you know okay in the foreground you have this period car driving by, but mm-hmm. I don't know about you. When I looked at, when I saw the background and there were a few structures in the background, I was like, those don't really look like 1930s style buildings. It's just they, the background kind of looked like trailers from, and that I see every day in Silver Springs, Nevada. <laughs> it's like, hmm, kind of, kind of, uh, at that point, wouldn't you be better just shooting it against the backdrop of a completely empty, uh, you know, uh, background? I, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. I, well, the Paramount lot was not available that day, I guess. Okay. Okay. They, they couldn't shoot it on the, the Wild West Street or... <laughs> anyway, yeah. So... Uh, Eugene Bashar was apparently a young boy who somehow talked his parents into giving him whatever the amount of money was to see this this uh, this mummy, and he describes his experience like you got got into the tent, and he he's like you know they make you move right by it you know they they got a guy guarding the tent and a guy guarding the the, the statue, and you didn't really get to look at it long. And the way he said that, here's my conjecture. Because they, they, this guy seems to be some sort of amateur, like, you know, self-appointed researcher into this mummy. Yeah. Do you think, like, his obsession, like, it just all started, like, he, w- he went to see this mummy. And as a little kid, he felt like he kind of got um, swindled on the amount of time uh to yeah. to be allowed to see it like you know it's like you know yeah. i paid and they just sort of rushed me right by it and that mm-hmm. sort of sense of unfairness like nod at him on some level to the point where he eventually became obsessed with the mummy <laughs> like maybe maybe on some unconscious level he's 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 done all this research and he's trying to track it down just cuz he just wants to see it again and then actually be able to see it for a few minutes rather than a few seconds. Um, eventually, this this mummy in the like the 1950s it falls in the hands of a guy named Ivan Goodman, who is mentioned as a used car salesman. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know. Like, it's uh, it's interesting that this mummy is falling into the hands of like insurance salesmen and used car dealers and and whatnot. It's like, well, they gotta fill out their their wonder commerce, right? Right, precisely. And Ivan, I don't remember the segment explicitly sta- stating he was Texan. Do you? But they, 
No, I and also he the scene he's in he's bringing the mummy to the Chicago Museum of Natural History. Yeah, but Goodman, I think because he's a used car salesman, is portrayed as being extremely t- Texas. <laughs> right, he's got he's walking in with a he's cowboy hat. hat and uh, what what are those things? It's not a tie; it's a little drawstring. The bolo tie. The bolo tie. Yeah, he's walking yes. in, and he's 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 basically like that. Simpsons character, they like the the Texan Texas oil men, Texan yeah. oil man. If there had been any like women in this reenactment se- segment, um, he totally would have been sexually harassing them. <laughs> but yeah, so he hands it off to this uh, scientist who I, I guess, and that's he, the scientist is the reason why we have a lot of pictures and X rays of this mummy. I mean, it it is a mummy. It's not just like a a clay statue. Like it has like a skeleton inside of it and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we kind of have the, we're we're introduced to a a George Gill, who's a forensic anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And he's, I mean, he's. Modern day. Yeah. This isn't a reenactment. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Right. He's being interviewed. And his kind of conjecture is basically this was an infant. And it was born with like a certain condition where it didn't really have a brain. And as a result, its skull was kind of flat. Anencephalic. Anencephalic. There we go. Got it. Crystal. Anencephalic is the name of the condition. Yes. You are a far braver person than I, because I was not even going to attempt to pronounce that. (laughs) Good job. Well, I want to describe the mummy in a little bit more detail. So it yes. is placed so that it was mummified so that it was knees bent and sitting upright. Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of telltale. I mean, immediately on looking at it, my, I assume it had, um, anencephaly. Uh, okay. I'm not a doctor, but I, but I do know some things and there's a couple of telltale signs. The back of the head is, uh, almost completely flat. Yeah. There's also very notably some facial distortion. So the eyes are really, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, protruding or bugged out. And so immediately when I saw the face of this mummy, I'm like, oh, that's an infant that was born malformed mm-hmm. in their skull. I mean, there were some really telltale signs for that. And then that seems to be the conclusion of uh, what's his name? George Gill. George Gill. And so he's like, based on everything that I've seen, this is a uh, uh, infant that probably died almost immediately after being born from anencephaly because they, if you don't have a fully formed skull or you're just missing parts of your brain, I mean, it's pretty obvious you're not going to survive for very long. I mean, there are there have been exceptions to this, um, but in in those times in general. You know, and we also don't know how old it is, right? So back in 1950, the last time anybody like had their hands on this mummy, they were only able to X-ray it and take photographs of it. There was no radiocarbon dating. There was no DNA analysis that could be performed at that time. So, mm-hmm. um, um, they uh, and then like doesn't isn't this when Robert Stack jumps in where he's like, and the Native American tribes believe that it should be returned to them maybe i don't know <laughs> yes 
<laughs> Robert Stack is like, I mean, he's like, you know, some really scientists slide it in like two thirds of the way through the segment. They're like, yeah, they want it back so they can bury it because it's a dead baby. <laughs> right. But then we're like, but who can say what it was? It's like, I'm, and then they go back to the, the forensic anthropologist who says, yeah, uh, pretty sure that's a baby with anencephaly that was mummified and then placed in that cave as a well, burial site. Yeah. But then we get a countering uh, point of view from uh, uh, Eugene, who disagrees with right. uh, George Groves. Like, no, no, no. That, that, uh, what you see on its head, that, it could have been, you know, that, that, that could have been a person whose head was hit with a, you know, a large rock or something something right i mean so eugene's theory is there was a race of tiny humans running around Mm -hmm. smaller than pygmies okay yeah so there are there are people called pygmies um in africa and asia who stand four to five feet tall so the tallest pygmy is maybe two inches shorter than me i'm not very tall okay yeah they're small people but they're not 17 inches small no, no, they're 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 just short humans. They're not hobbits. Right. <laughs> right. Well, they're not they're not Dobby. They're not house elves. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> I, yeah, or you know, uh, what was what was the um uh did they did they have a, a proper name for the uh the, the race that Willow belonged to? Um Oh God, I don't remember. I don't think I don't think they did because like the movie's yeah. POV from Will's point of view, so like they don't have a, a unique term to refer to each other. They they have names to refer to the giants uh, right. uh, 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 around them. Um, yeah. Did you know there's a, a Willow TV series that's coming at, coming out? I didn't. I did not know that. No. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be. I don't know. I assume on Prime or something uh warwick davis like he's gonna be back um wow i didn't know he was still alive (laughs) i also didn't think he was dead but i just because i didn't have thought about him at all no no yeah unless unless you're uh unless you're an avid fan of the leprechaun horror movie series there's not there's not too much reason to really be having Warwick Davis in your thoughts on a daily basis. Um, yeah. 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 Well, no, good for him. I'm yeah, yeah. Right. I, yeah. It, I agree. It, notably it, War, Warwick Davis is taller than 17 inches though. You say? Yeah, no, exactly. That's the thing. Like the, the Eugene is going on the idea that like, there's a group of like people like, cause yeah, cause Warwick Davis is, I don't know what, like three, three feet tall. That's, that's a lot taller than 17 inches. Um, yeah, yeah it's, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I mean, obviously Eugene, well, not only, not only that. So there's a race of tiny people, tinier than the tiniest people we mm-hmm. know of in modern day. Okay. We've never found any other evidence of this. The one piece of evidence that we have found of this, um, what Eugene Bashore is is saying is that you no, know, the flatness of the back of the skull was due to an injury where someone bashed this tiny person's head in. Yeah. So what he's saying is 
not only were they so tiny, they were so wicked <laughs> that regular sized humans saw fit to smash the tiny people with a rock. <laughs> what is he claiming here? What is what the fuck is this? Like, the, uh, uh, Robbie, listen. In the in the interest of time, I think we got to I think we got to wrap this up. But but I mean, we all know what really happened here. Yeah. Like, there's no fucking mystery. I guess the mystery is that where is this mummy? We would like to radiocarbon date it. Or maybe give it back to the tribe that buried it. Yeah, yeah, I. And that yeah, would be nice, right? Yeah, because I mean, but yeah, the is, on, the only thing that's not not you know unsolved at the end, as you say, at the end of the segment, is just because the last person we knew, like knew had it was a doctor. He moved down to Florida. Right. He sort of uh, dropped off grid. Um, yeah. And uh, I I don't know uh, did did. Did you find? Did you do any research? Do you know what happened to the? I, I'm assuming this 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 mummy is like in so, some storage place somewhere and has been for decades in some box. Yeah. Or maybe it was just thrown out after the doctor died. Um. I mean, it's like okay, it's like this. This is what really happened in the 1930s. A couple of bandits did some grave robbing of a Native American burial site. <laughs> They sold what uh, this infant, which probably did not live very long mm-hmm. because it had no brain, yeah. uh, was respectfully posed, placed, and mummified in this burial site. This thing took a tour of the, you know, the freak shows of the Depression era. Some used car salesmen bought it. And now this motherfucker Eugene Bashore is t- trying to come up with like X, Y, and Z when it's really A to B. You gr- robbed a grave. It was a, uh, you know, birth defect mm-hmm. infant. You can find examples of what this would look like. Even in the in the early 90s, you can find examples in textbooks of exactly what this looks like. It looks exactly like the mummy. Yeah. Um, and you ultimately have a forensic anthropologist telling you exactly what this is. So yeah, really the mystery is returning that what is now probably in a storage site, like you said, back to, but just like the lack of the lack of specificity of what are these tribes that believe in tiny people, not even finding one singular Native American per co- community college professor that they could ask about this is either lazy or n- no one wanted to participate with it because they're like, no, this is plain and simple. This is grave robbing. Yeah. Yeah. This is completely disgusting. Give us back our dead. What the fuck? There's no mystery here. Right, right. I, th- I mean, this was this was in such this was in such poor taste to even float this idea of tiny people when really it's a case of grave robbing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even even for the early nineties, I feel like this was just done in such poor taste. You know? Yeah, it's gross. You're gross. Unsolved mysteries. Take a shower. <laughs> Ooh, damn, that's uh, that's some of the harshest criticism we've given to the show in a while. Um, yeah, well, and right, rightfully so too. Uh, I, you know, I feel like with the with the uh, with the next segment that we course correct a little bit. 
So this actually takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, and um, this might date the podcast a little bit if I mention this, but I sadly I don't think it will date it because I don't expect the situation to be resolved anytime soon. But um, Jackson's having a real hard time right now, and um, a lot of that has to do with their water, and um, uh, it just kind of seems like things in Jackson have been fucked up for a really long time, and I'm sorry to hear that. That shit sucks. Um, so Andre Jones was 18 years old um, in 1992. Um, he he is the child of Esther, who uh, is the president of the Jackson branch of the NAACP. His stepfather, Charles Quinn, um, is a Nation of Islam minister. And we know that when we see Charles talking because he is most definitely wearing a bow tie. Oh, okay. oh boy, is he wearing a bow tie? That that yeah. that stuck out. He's like, wearing the hell out of that bow tie. It's it's a really um, you know I I, I was actually very impressed. Like I was like that that I mean it's just not just some like uh you know just just boilerplate bow tie. It's really kind of stylish. I I think. Yeah, I would also. I don't know what the association is with wearing a bow tie and being in the nation of Islam. And if anyone wants to let me know what that is, I'd love, I'd love an answer. Um, but I digress. Yes. So, uh, the, the, is it the County jail or. He, well, he got transferred from one jail to another at some point during this, uh, the segment. Right. So, Yeah. Um, yeah. I, okay. So, but, but we're going to focus on it's the Simpson County Jail. Yeah. It seems to be the problem here. Um, so, a little background that Unsolved Mysteries gives us in the early 90s, I believe uh, Congress opened an investigation into Mississippi's uh, prison system um, because there were an inordinate amount of inmate deaths. And a lot of those inmate deaths were classified as suicides but we're talking we're talking about dozens on dozens of so-called suicides within the mississippi jail and prison system um and unfortunately andre jones got caught up in all of this so uh basically andre's out driving around with his girlfriend and um at first we don't know why Andre was picked up, but he was arrested and put in jail. Um, he was not told what he was charged with. He called his parents at 2 a.m. Uh, from the Brandon, Mississippi police station, and uh, he said he didn't know what they'd been what he'd been arrested for. Um, and then at 4 a.m., he tells him he's going to be transferred to the Simpson County Jail, which is 40 miles south of Jackson, and this is really. Uh, a jail that is notorious for being very dangerous and um you know andre for all intents and purposes seems to be a good kid i mean his his parents are definitely on the straight and narrow and he was getting ready to go to college mm -hmm. i mean this does not seem like a guy that was like trying to fuck up his life you know what i mean yeah um yeah. <clears throat> Did uh, real briefly? Did you notice yeah. that the transitions between when he was arrested at one thirty and the two a.m. Mm -hmm. call and the four a.m. call uh, in the reenactment—they were all done with wipes. 
Oh, were they? Yeah. <laughs> it oh. felt like I, I felt like George Lucas was editing this this oh, segment God. for a moment. I was like, I, what didn't, are- I did not notice the wipes. No, I didn't notice that. Um, <laughs> so. Well, yeah, sorry. I, I, I didn't. I, I don't mean to detract from the the details of the case, but that was something that stuck out to me. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen a wipe done on this uh, show before, and I, I'm certain I found it a little odd that this was the specific statement that they segment they chose to to start getting a little artistic with. Yeah, it would have been something if they did like a star wipe or something. It would have been really totally inappropriate. <laughs> Um, so, so 4am is the last time Andre speaks to his parents. Uh, it's the next, uh, it's the next morning, but the way that Unsolved Mysteries portrays it, it looks like it's the middle of the next night. Mm -hmm. Um, and an officer arrives at the Quinn's door and just saying, here's a number for Simpson County jail. You need to call them. And so Esther calls the jail she finds out or she's told that her son has committed suicide so andre was in custody for less than 24 hours mm-hmm. and she's being told that he's committed suicide okay yeah that makes a fucking ton of sense to me right well and she um, she mentioned how when she called like the information was mm-hmm. delivered to her in a very casual mm-hmm. way like Mm-hmm. As if it, as if it was being delivered to literally like anyone rather than the mother of the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So at this point, we kind of start to find out why Andre may have been arrested, and there really are two very conflicting sides to this story. And mm-hmm. one side is told by Tanisha, Andre's girlfriend, who was with him when he was arrested. And the other side is told by a good old boy police commissioner who was not on site. He wasn't one of the officers that made the arrest. He's like four people removed up mm-hmm. from anyone that was there. Um, so just based on that alone, I'm very dubious because he was not there. Tanisha was there. Tanisha has nothing to gain by making up a story. Her boyfriend's already dead. She just wants to get to the truth. There's no, there's no gain here involved with Tanisha trying to make something up or make or embellish this story. So, um, whereas the cops have a lot to lose if they don't get their story straight with yeah. what happened. And um, basically, Tanisha's version of the story is that at about 1 a.m., her and Andre were pulled over. Uh, Andre, without being told for what reason... Um, the cops that pulled them over had a little confab and then walked back over to the truck, told Andre to get out of the truck, um, cuffed his, uh, hands and feet, shackled his feet and took him to jail. And Tunisia only knew that he'd been arrested and she didn't know why. That's her story. Okay. Yeah. The cop's story is that when they pulled over Andre. They did it so on suspicion of something like expired tags, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for, there's there's your first clue that this is going to be a fucking lie. Uh, they said they they saw Andre pitch something out of the vehicle when he had been pulled over, which they later identified as a 38 caliber revolver. 
Uh, they said that they also found an open can of beer in the uh, cabin of the truck. And they also said that the truck that Andre, it was a, a friend's truck that he was driving. Um, he had borrowed it. They also said that that had been stolen and that the VIN number of the vehicle had been altered so as to not be able to identify the truck. <clears throat> Further, uh, Andre's parents say that, uh, you know, Andre was a bright kid and he had a bright future. I mean, he was going to college, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the cops say that they, that Andre was so cooperative when he was arrested, he admitted to being in a gang. And then they were, they took photos of him, um, showing various gang gestures and signs, um, that's how cooperative he was with the police. Again, this does not make sense with somebody who's about to commit suicide, even if this part is true. And I'm certain that it isn't. Yeah. Uh, they, they, right. And, and well, I mean, I was, I mean, I didn't even think about that aspect that like, they're like, yeah, you seem, you know, in high spirits almost. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, uh, yeah that, uh, but what, what kind of, um, uh, what what I found distracting was when they started interviewing Mr. Ingram um, almost Is immediately. Yeah. Okay. Like right right off the bat, he's like, well, I don't think there's any uh, reason to believe that there were uh, blah, blah, blah in- involved with the, the death of young Andre <laughs> Jones. It was like just the way he said, young, you know, it's like, that sounds a little patronizing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, like you said, the way he was like, he's, you know, the officers said they were very impressed with this young, you know, Mr. Quinn. Uh, I was very cooperative and impressed with this young man. And it was just like, I swear I was waiting for him to say like, <laughs> like, you know, that he was one of the good ones. Uh, while while he's yeah. at it, yeah, I mean, it very much came off as 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 like that. Here's the thing, though. I think I think Andre probably is one of the good ones of people. He had a future. Mm-hmm. He was not in a gang. His parents were like, "That's absolutely false." He was not a gangbanger. He wasn't running around with gangs. Tanisha yeah. said Andre never had a gun, so he could have never thrown a gun out of the car. We weren't drinking. There was no beer in that car. And he may not have known that the truck he was driving was stolen because he borrowed it from a friend for the night. It's now to the matter of this quote unquote suicide. Sorry, I didn't throw a content warning on this, guys, because I am fairly convinced that Andre did not commit suicide. So, yeah, sorry, I didn't throw one out, out there because that's not what happened. Um, he is so to the matter of the forensics around how Andre died. Um supposedly he was able in a dark corner of a shower area area the simpson county jail was able to rig up using a shoelace from a shoe and then over a metal pole that was eight feet above the floor uh tie a small noose and hang himself um and then it was other inmates that went in there and checked and saw like oh god this guy's been in there a while um you know, and then they went and they got the guards when they found Andre's body. Um, 
At this mm-hmm. point, the family of Andre Jones calls bullshit and gets their own forensic person in there, thank goodness. And this guy's like, no, 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 no. First of all, there's no way that Andre could have rigged all that up by himself. Second of all, where the ligature marks are do not match up with somebody who was hung from above. They match up with somebody who was strangled from behind. And here's what I found. And then the cop, the cop commissioner who's trying to, he's like, well, we had, you know, no, there was, it was, they had their own forensics person that comes on at this point. It wasn't the commissioner anymore, but they're like, yeah, well, you know, all of these people, all of the cops agreed with my findings. I'm like, yeah, they would. Because what happened was you had an 18 year old kid in your custody for less than 24 hours and he was killed in the shower. Yeah. And your and your reason for arresting him is dubious at best, and it honestly just kind of sounds like you're trying to cover your tracks. Um, one of the things that was really interesting I thought about this segment though, and that unsolved or Robert Stack's narration uh, mentioned at least twice was that um, there have been an equal number of black and white inmates in the prison system in Mississippi that have met the same fate, which they are calling you know suicide. Um, I don't know why Andre would have fallen into such despair after less than 24 hours, not even knowing what he's charged with him, not knowing how long he's going to be there. It's not like he was facing a life sentence because he hadn't even no. been charged yet. He so. hadn't even been in front of the judge yet. Yeah. yeah. None of that had happened. So they threw, So these fucking cops arrested him for dubious reasons. Maybe the truck he was driving was stolen, but he's not the one who stole it. Threw him in jail. And got him killed. And this, all of this is their cover story. So the way that this segment ends is that Unsolved Mysteries shows all of these parents and loved ones of uh, men who have died in the custody of the state of Mississippi. 48 in, in number at the time of this segment, Erin. 48, which they're calling suicide. Again, I really feel like that's kind of kind of dubious. Um, yeah. And it shows them going, going, is it before Congress or I think it was. Yeah. Right. Or or at least the, the uh, state legislature. Mississippi. The state legislature. Yeah. Yeah. After, I mean, the update that we get on this is basically that uh, the Quinns filed a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi and the federal government, but both were dismissed. Um, but the U S justice department did cite Mississippi's jail system for gross, gross deficiencies. Mm. Um. But the report failed to find evidence that the Mississippi hangings were anything other than suicides. So, I mean, that kind of sounds like a tacit admission from the U.S. Justice Department saying, yeah, you're throwing people in here. You can't provide for their safety and they're getting killed. Yeah. Uh, You know, but we can't we can't prove that these were murders and not suicides. So, um. You know, I honestly thought, and especially in comparison to the segment that precedes this one, this was actually a very serious and critical look at the justice system. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, um, you know, they gave the cops their airtime, but they also brought in a lot of facts of like, this just doesn't add up. Yeah. Uh, with Andre. So, I mean, it's. I don't really know what to say about that. That's really, it's really unfortunate. And, uh, as far as I know, um, nothing has been done to clean up Mississippi's jail system. It is still (laughs) notoriously one of the worst in the country. Like people die of, uh, heat exhaustion. Yeah. Because things aren't air conditioned and they're in basically concrete boxes with no, uh, airflow. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, I mean, it is, it is an atrocious situation to this day. So, um, while we're on that hopeful note, (laughs) (laughs) um, should, maybe we could talk about something happy. I don't know. Robbie, personally, when I get in my car and especially at night, uh, I, I like to look in the back seat just to make sure, you know, the killer isn't back there. It, there's there's too much junk in my back seat for the killer to be able to fit at uh, the moment. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's one way to stay safe. <laughs> yes, my um, slo- slovenly ways have, have saved me inadvertently a number of times. Another way uh, you might be surprised when looking in the back of your car is if you find a baby there. Right. Which apparently <laughs> <laughs> happened in this this segment, nineteen sixty one. Yeah, so so yeah, we're past a family's yeah coming back from a movie or whatever. No, I think they were at the hospital, right? Like there's oh, a were they? there was a relative who was um, I guess you know oh, they're visiting they went to the movies. <laughs> this makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, well. It, for for a while, I was confused because I thought like the suggestion was someone had given birth at the hospital and then on the way out, <laughs> just like... said never mind. <laughs> but I think I, I, you know I got as far as the parking lot. I just can't do it. Yeah, well, I mean, and you know what what I was fixated on was it was 1961. It's like okay, so you know we're 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 out of the Great Depression. Um, we're kind of. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the this is past the period of time where you had to worry about the Georgia tans of the world, you know, coming mm-hmm. along, just snatching up children to, to sell off. Like, it's like, all right, by 61, you could put a baby in the backseat of the car and assume that Georgia tan is not going to like, you know, right, yeah. right out of the sky on her bicycle, swoop him up and take her to, to his or to her orphanage. Um, right. Yeah. But uh I'm sorry. Continue on with the actual facts of the segment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I guess this family was visiting their uncles or sons or seeing a movie or whatever the fuck. And they get back to their car and uh, the young boy in the family was like, yo, there's a baby back here. And then the parents were like, don't joke around about that stuff. And then there was a baby back there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they took the baby back into the hospital to be examined by doctors she was no more than three days old. Um, presumably, she had not been in the back of their car for that long. I think they would have noticed. But anyway. Yeah. So um, her name, who knows? Uh, but she gets kicked around the foster care system for about five and a half months. And then she gets adopted uh, by a couple in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, her name is Terry. Um, she has really great parents and an older brother and sister and everybody was real happy. Um, they didn't try to hide the fact that she was adopted um, mm-hmm. from her. You know, wasn't one of those situations. Uh, but then she got to be a teenager and she's like, I would like to know where I came from. And, um, you know, we get a really interesting sort of side interview with her mother, Mary Lou, who was like really conflicted about, do I tell her the truth that I know? Or do I just say I don't know? And so ultimately, Mary Lou decides to go with the truth, saying, you know, you were found in the back of a car and then 
we eventually adopted you. And then there's a really nice little like reenactment of a younger Mary Lou and Terry at the library going through microfiche. Newspaper clippings. Microfiche. Microfiche, man. Uh, Crystal. Microfiche. I I love saying it too. Uh, Microfiche. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, Yeah. I was recently, one thing I've, uh, a horrible waste of time I've gotten into is, um, is, uh, watching videos of people reacting to movies for the first time. Uh huh. Um, and there's, uh, I was recently watching this one of someone watching the, the 89 Batman for the first time. There's a scene. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- this person, uh, th- their, uh, their, their, I can't remember, remember the name of their channel, but it, like it mentions that the, the name of their cha- YouTube channel mentions that they're a millennial. And, and th- we're talking like this person's mm-hmm. on the young, young end of this millennial spectrum. Like they're almost Gen mm-hmm. Z or whatever. Um, okay. And like they're watching the 89 Batman and there's a scene in there where Kim Bassinger and Robert Wall, who plays the, uh, the you know, they play the photographer and reporter respectively. They're, they're looking oh. on a microfiche machine um, oh. about, uh, you know, some newspaper, old, old newspaper articles or whatever. And the person oh. watching the film is like, you know, like she's like, is that a computer? And when you get some more shots of the thing, she's like, that's not a computer. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh. Mm. Like, I mean, you know, uh, us being the, the older millennials, we've seen plenty of, we're accustomed to the, the trope of like, you know, person's doing research Mm -hmm. on, you know, trying to discover who's this, you know, like boilerplate reason why uh, a microfiche machine might appear uh, uh, in a thing. You know, this person's like, who is this mysterious woman who looks just like my uh, deceased s- sister who's suddenly shown up uh, in my, my life or husband's life or some yeah. ex-husband's life or something. And, you know, they go to the library and, uh, but I guess, I guess this person had not even seen that depicted in the film <laughs> before. So that's incredible because I'm going to, I'm about to lay some shit down right now about microfiche. Okay. Have you ever had to look or been curious enough, maybe not had to, but have you ever used a microfiche machine to go through old periodicals? And very briefly, I want to describe what this is. It was basically a way of scanning something that it's not digital, it was on film, and it shrunk it down. So if you had a bunch of like old newspapers, they would take these newspapers, basically take a picture of it that shrank it down and then a microfiche machine would blow it back up again so that it was you could read it yeah but it was a, it, it was basically a pre microchip way of recording data or old information in a smaller format than it originally comes in does that make sense yes yes okay I'll- but it was a f- way of doing that on film it, it was pre microchip so this is what i'm gonna lay down on you I remember when our college library still had those for like older publications that had that's what I was going to mention. Yeah. You like, I, I haven't, I didn't use it. Uh, my freshman year at UNR. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I don't know for what class it was or something. I, I had to look up some stuff and like I was I was um uh one of the thing one of the sources was on a, a microfiche. I was like, well, mm-hmm. I guess I'll I'll go to try to use it, and I couldn't figure yeah. out how to use the the, the, the machine because <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not very good with technical stuff. So I was like, after about ten minutes of fiddling around, it was like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'll just use a different source. <laughs> this paper (laughs) how about you did you use it or did you just i i remember looking up things in the catalog and a couple of times it came up that it was on microfiche and i was just like fuck that i don't don't need that paper that bad yeah yeah uh Uh, so that's been microfiche what were we talking about oh terry right yeah anyways so terry wants to find her family she finds her family um they actually they find her through unsolved mysteries the irony no that's not the right word but um her her birth mother had passed away uh just months before this episode aired yeah so so unfortunately she didn't get to meet her birth mother but she did meet her other siblings and and her sibling paul oh man you're gonna mention uh, paul oh paul it's pretty far out, man. I, and he's I, he's all about the vibe and uh, the aura, and it was, it uh, was the, you know the unspoken ta- connections between mankind. Yeah, he was talking about like how you know it was kind of like karma that you know that you know yeah. they would get to fight. Uh, uh, to, to, to meet this uh, sister they didn't have and yeah no, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i'm glad that stuck out to you because it sure stuck out to me because i've often wondered you know with these sort of family reunion type things like these are people mm-hmm. who are like have been raised in entirely different households what would happen mm-hmm. if they just like encountered each other it's like ew ew so i can't help but think oh. that like i mean terry you know, when she shows up and maybe she like, it's like she meets Paul and Paul's like, um, and, and, you know, he's, he's wearing his, his floral Hawaiian type shirt. And he's just like, yeah. so good to see you. And I, well, blah, blah, blah. I was like, and she, she must've thought like, well, it's a bit eccentric, but, uh, he seems very pleasant. So, yeah, it's not like a an angry jerk. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's funny because they they have an, a the first day that they're um, able to all get together the siblings one of the si- siblings Philip it wasn't able to attend uh, because he was on a business trip but he eventually connects with everyone and there's a picture of them and um, Philip who was on the business trip that was so important he couldn't meet his long lost sister. Yeah. Is definitely financially floating Paul. Like, there's no question in my mind <laughs> looking at this family, like, exactly what the dynamic is here. But, like, Paul, you know, Paul's like, uh, you know, he's like the cool uncle. All the, you know, the cousins come and talk to you when they got a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you know, you like. Imagine if Terry ever visited him at his house. He, you know, be like, "Hey, come on in. Yeah. Hey, can I get you some, uh, some, some non-GMO organic ice cream, uh, non-dairy ice cream?" Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, he's brewing his own kombucha. 100%. Yeah. 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 It's. Uh, it, yeah. It, it was. Uh, this was a ni- nice, nice uh, 
um, little pick me up after um, very serious previous segment. Um, then, then we 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 this episode ends with um, it's a wanted segment. Kind of strange that the it felt more like an investigator segment. This sort of this re- this segment, um, they do mention a murder mystery involving a, a young man named Jonathan Francia, um, whose body was found out in the New Mexico desert, uh, mm-hmm. apparently killed by um, some guy in a cowboy hat. Uh, at least yeah. that's one of the options that he is portrayed in the sketch <laughs> work done by Jeannie Boylan, who's the real star of this yeah. segment. Uh, she's a yeah. sketch artist. Um, you know, sure- she did she did the sketch that got the guy who killed Polly Class, put him in jail. That also, got, I yeah. when they brought up Polly Class, that was just like brought me back to a very specific time in my own childhood because that happened in the Bay Area when I lived there and I was a little kid and it was just oh like, all over the news. Like I just like went back in time during this. Damn. Okay, so that's something segment. you you firsthand another another uh, Bay Area murder that you remember firsthand being in the news. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that was everywhere for a while. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, Boylan obviously not a lightweight when it comes to the world of sketch artists' work. And they their interview with her, she talks about how she was she always felt like she was dissatisfied with the sort of sketches that victims were being made to to perform uh, to to that were being presented with. That like the sketch artist is just like yeah okay so what is it nose wider wider wide. That wide enough? Okay. Uh, mouth. Okay, mouth. Uh, this, uh, like this? Yeah? Yeah, you know, just sort of rushing through or, or you know. Um, and they have a reenactment of Jeannie. A, before she was a sketch artist, I know, I guess the, the, the implication is she just worked in the office of the Malmuth, Oregon uh, Sheriff's Office, uh, which is the uh, county that city of portland is in i believe um yes multnomah county yes yeah um uh which was disappointing i was hoping they would say jackson county because uh-huh. that's where the city of medford is and yeah because in the reenactment yeah they have genie looking at some um some uh you know like a sketch artist uh talking with a a victim and you know they're, they're working on putting together a sketch i was like oh man if she had worked in jackson county sheriff's office like we could have made a, it would have been perfect we could have had a joke about how like the, this victim was like yeah okay so and, and you looked like and just like the description is basically um uh, was it what was his name james cox one of the one of the two head medford hustle guys obsessed with baseball cards um but nah anyway so Jeannie, like i guess she just took up sketch artist work work uh, herself and discovered mm-hmm. she has uh, an aptitude for it because she 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 described how she would try to like you know the ways that she would make connections with the person to help lure the details out. Like if someone was like, Oh, I don't know. 
she would then move on to something else, talk a bit, and then, you know, let the, the, the recall sort of happen. Uh, mm-hmm. and in this segment, she's, she's talking with, um, uh, uh, cause, uh, they, this was a weird segment. It was kind of a, um, a, uh, a dual, uh, a dual investigator slash wanted like, uh, like this yeah. was, this was, I, I mean, wasn't it wasn't quite sure what like the mystery was exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it should, it, this should have been an investigators, um, yeah. Uh, say listed segment, but yeah. So she, they bring her in and she, um, she said, uh, cause they got this, this, J- uh, Jonathan Francia case and they have a real re- reenactment of like, he disappeared shortly after like leaving a restaurant and the footage they shot. It's not clear, how, uh, Crystal, but I have a distinct feeling that like the, f- because we sort of have a, a, a shot of a restaurant with a hotel behind it. There's no signage, mm-hmm. but I think maybe it was a Howard Johnson's. I'll send you an image after. Well, that's a hell of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a deep cut for people who've listened to this pod for a number of years. That's all the way back to season, season one, season one, when we were trying to trying to land that Howard Johnson's sponsorship from a restaurant chain that no longer even exists. <laughs> well, I don't know. Anyway. So, uh, she's, uh, Jeannie's doing sketch work with this, uh, this man named, uh, Scott, um, who's, uh, uh, you know, he's describing this, the suspect named Jason. I thought it was interesting when they're interviewing Scott and the voiceover of, of him talking uh, about this, uh, this Jason suspect. I don't know about you, but I heard him. I, I distinctly heard him at some point, like saying, like when she was, he was talking about, it, I was like, yeah, uh, yes. Well, he was a, an attractive man. Uh, w- women would find him attractive. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a very quick correction. Um, yeah. yeah. The guy they had reenacting for, was it Jason? Yeah. Um, it was real weird. <laughs> he played <laughs> it real weird, you know? Yeah, it's sort of strange. Yeah, I, I would not have found him to be attractive, but um, yeah. So and then like the, another a co-suspect, a Paul Richardson, I guess like the sheriff's department uh, got a confession out of him. And then the next day he had hung himself <laughs> in, in jail. Allegedly. Wow. Uh, wow. That was weird that that popped up in this episode. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I. So is there like a update or something? With this? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I mean, she, well, listen. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, I don't think this is gonna be the last we see a genie boiling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So. There you have it. Unsolved mysteries. If uh, you head yeah. on over to Patreon reenacted pod, you can shoot us one or $5 a month to 
help us continue making this podcast. Yeah, the one dollar is just like a tip, like, hey, I like your stuff, thanks. And then at five dollars, um, you get uh, you know, sometimes we early release an episode, sometimes we put some special shit on our Patreon feed. Um, sometimes Robbie will send you like a little prezi, maybe. I mean, no guarantees, but anything can happen. Yeah, it kind of all just depends on how lazy I am in my everyday life. Right. Um, So uh, go uh, shoot us an email, reenactedpod at gmail.com, Twitter, reenacted, at at reenacted, uh, Facebook, Facebook, uh, reenacted fans, podcast fans. Um, Yeah, yeah. Del Taco. Um, Del Taco, we're waiting for the call. Hit us up. Send us an email. You know how to find us. We're here for you. Happy to get in any advertising opportunities we possibly can. Um, Until that happens, Robbie, do you want to do the thing? Join me next time for another hour of fascinating and intriguing mysteries. 